Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that this month's podcast is sponsored by Massimo. Massimo is helping clinicians and care teams provide excellent care for their patients, both in the hospital and at home. With advanced monitoring parameters and powerful connectivity tools, Massimo offers a range of hospital and home-based solutions designed to support chronic care management, surge capacity efforts, and more. Whether inside or beyond the hospital, Massimo's remote monitoring solutions and hospital automation platform help providers seamlessly manage multiple patients simultaneously, providing data to help them identify when intervention may be required. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. And now let's hear what is in the June issue of the journal. Hi, this is Rich Branson, Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. I want to welcome you to the June 2022 Respiratory Care podcast and editor's commentary. This month's editor's choice is a paper by Trumies and colleagues evaluating the impact of a home respiratory therapist on COPD admission rates. They conducted a pre-post-interventional trial comparing readmission of COPD subjects with the intervention being an at-home respiratory therapist operating as a disease manager. Prior to the disease management program, readmission rates were 22% within 30 days compared with only 12% following implementation of the program. In addition, 60 and 90 day readmission rates were also statistically lower, reducing readmission rates by 20 and 30%. They concluded that disease management conducted by a home respiratory therapist in COPD effectively reduced readmission rates. Joyce Baker contributes an accompanying editorial suggesting that healthcare costs can be reduced through education and disease prevention in COPD. It's a typical instance of an ounce of prevention being worth a pound of cure. Abby Abdallah and others describe the incidence of post-extubation strider in subjects following mechanical ventilation for COVID-19. In this retrospective review, they evaluated all subjects ventilated for more than 28 hours and defined post-extubation strider as audible strider within two hours of extubation. Compared to a control group of 211 subjects with post-extubation strider occurring in 3% of those subjects, Following COVID-19, the rate was 23%. They also noted that subjects with a greater viral burden in tracheal secretions were more likely to have post-extubation strider. It was also associated with female sex, prone positioning, and reintubation. Pinyalinon and colleagues provide commentary. They note that subjects in the COVID-19 group had a duration of ventilation three times greater than controls, and that half of the patients with COVID-19 received prone position compared to only 3% for controls. They suggest that these factors, severity of illness, duration of ventilation, and the use of prone position are all likely far more important to the incidence of post-extubation strider than viral load in the trachea. It's important to note that the changes in prone position result in a different torque on the endotracheal tube, and we should all be checking cuff pressures after we move patients in the prone position to make sure that they're not excessive. Moy et al. described the ventilation practices aboard air medical transports in a multi-center retrospective review of 130 bases. The cohort includes over 68,000 subjects, but importantly, height was only documented in 6% of subjects. 
they found that larger tidal volumes and higher plateau pressures were seen in 75% of women versus 25% of men. Gender was an independent predictor of non-lung protective ventilation. This is a little bit disturbing because the group from Mayo Clinic described this same phenomenon almost 20 years ago. Perhaps as importantly, over 90% of subjects had tidal volume set empirically without any measurement of height. Chris Blakeman provides an accompanying editorial describing a multitude of methods for determining height in this scenario and the opportunity for process improvement. He suggests that lung protection starts at time zero. We might think of special ways for the ventilator to automatically set the tidal volume, but it's clear in this case, simply providing a tape measure or some method to determine the patient's height would go a long way to improving lung protective ventilation cheaply and efficiently. Fataka and others described pulmonary rehabilitation in COVID-19 survivors. Based on admission condition, they allocated subjects to increasing levels of activity from passive exercises to free walking, balance exercises, strength exercises, and tailored cycle ergometry, endurance training. They found that inpatient pulmonary rehabilitation was able to be progressively increased in survivors and that cycle training was feasible in half of the subjects. The impact of these findings on outcomes require further study. I think as we look at the value efficiency of respiratory care moving forward, one of the, the new areas where respiratory therapists might be involved include help improving the, uh, the aspect of early ambulation, even if that just means sitting up on the side of the bed. This is a practice that has been shown to improve outcomes. Harrison et al. retrospectively evaluated prognosis and outcomes in subjects receiving home oxygen therapy for COPD and interstitial lung disease over a seven-year period. It's important to note that the use of oxygen therapy at home is all based on studies in COPD, but they've just kind of been moved over to represent what might happen with patients with interstitial lung disease who have significant oxygen requirements as well. In a cohort of 384 subjects, 59% had COPD, and 49% were prescribed continuous oxygen therapy, while 187 were initially prescribed oxygen during ambulation. The five-year survival was 10% in the ILD subjects and 52% in COPD subjects. They also found that despite dismal survival in patients with interstitial lung disease, few subjects were ever referred to palliative care. They suggested early referrals to palliative care and improved care coordination as key areas for improvement in clinical practice. Davis and co-workers performed a survey of 412 COARC entry to practice programs to determine the use of simulation in teaching. The response rate was 30% and 75% of programs used simulation. They also found the majority of programs had mandatory simulation programs and believed the amount of simulation should be increased. Importantly, faculty training in simulation was judged as inadequate. I think we can all agree simulation needs to be implemented, but simulation also has to be improved to be an important part of the student's educational process. Baker and colleagues evaluated an inpatient pulmonary consult program for subjects with asthma and greater than one year old who are admitted to the ICU or identified as having poor medication adherence. In 126 subjects, the odds of returning to the emergency department or urgent care or hospital within the following 12 months did not differ between asthma consult and the control group. However, after adjusting for covariates of age, race, ethnicity, previous healthcare utilization, and existing specialists, there was a significant difference 
in the odds of readmission and revisits for the asthma consult group compared to the control group. They concluded that the program could improve medication adherence and decrease healthcare utilization. Rosner et al. retrospectively reviewed the use of bronchoscopy in pediatric subjects undergoing venovenous ECMO. Bronchoscopy was performed in 63% of subjects resulting in a larger tidal volume and improved dynamic compliance post-procedure. They reported few complications in subjects who underwent early bronchoscopy. Bronchoscopy often gets forgot as an important method of secretion removal, perhaps um, even greater in these patients with ECMO um, who are gas exchanges being su supported externally. Huntingache and others performed a retrospective review of pulmonary function tests in military personnel over a 12-year period in an effort to retrospectively correlate baseline spirometry values with methicoline challenge testing responsiveness. In over 1,900 methicoline challenge studies, one quarter were judged as positive. They reported that baseline spirometry prior to methicoline challenge proved useful in the evaluation of exertional dyspnea in this military population. They concluded that in subjects with exertional dyspnea and normal baseline spirometry, the use of the FEF2575 may be a useful surrogate measurement to predict reactivity and methicoline challenge. Becker et al. retrospectively evaluated variations in spirometry, biologic quality controls, and a cohort of individuals to determine the standard for the coefficient of variation. Data were collected over three years from 114 laboratories. They found that the coefficient of variation for five-day separated method was less than 5% for 94% of forced vital capacity and 93.5% of FEV1 values in the first year. By year three, 90% of FVC and FEV1 coefficient values were less than 4%. They su suggest that the acceptable coefficient of variation values are achievable. Culbreth and colleagues contribute a year in review that discusses the issues related to e-cigarettes, hookah use, and vaping-related lung injury during the COVID-19 pandemic. They point out that in particular, hookah smoking continues to be a concerning public health issue with increases in hookah bars and venues coupled with a lack of regulations for hookah smoking. Despite all that FDA has done to help with managing cigarettes and monitoring cigarettes, um, hookah is right now exempt from that FDA oversight. Varicogis provides a year in review on the role of interprofessional education and health professions education. She suggests that there are opportunities for respiratory therapy educators, researchers, managers, and clinicians to discover ways to develop interprofessional collaborative practice to ultimately impact patient outcomes. Pereno provides an invited review on the principles and operation of electrical impedance tomography and the potential role of EIT in monitoring mechanically ventilated patients. EIT is a unique form of monitoring that respiratory therapists will need to master. This is a, a unique and brand new technique that's unlike any of the other monitoring variables we've had in the past, and it takes some time to master what it is that we're seeing. It will continue to take time until it's FDA approved and we have more experience with it, but we appreciate Tom being willing to share his expertise on this aspect. Rich Calais provides a paper based on the first annual Casmeric lecture entitled Mechanical Ventilation in ARDS, Quo Vetus, literally, Whither Goest Thou? This paper is an extensive review of where we have been with ventilatory support in ARDS and what the future holds. Um, Rich continues to demonstrate that not only does he have a mastery of these subjects in respiratory care, but his writing style is among the, the best in the 
community. Menino describes the changing definition and perception of COPD based on his Petty Lecture. This work focuses on treatment of COPD and the importance of genetics and the phenotypes that are presented. Volska contributes a paper on airway safety in pediatrics and neonates based on her Kittredge Lecture. The papers based on these honor lectures at annual AARC meeting represent state-of-the-art reviews by recognized authorities in their field. I want to thank you for joining us for the editor's commentary and encourage you to become active with the journal, submit papers, read the journal, and become an impactful member of the association. Thank you. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.